When you think infrastructure, you probably think of new and replacement. But the big bill enacted late last year also has money for removing infrastructure, specifically river dams. For how and why this is the case, we turn to the president and CEO of the nonprofit American Rivers, Tom Kiernan. Mr. Kiernan, good to have you on. Great to be with you, Tom. Thank you for having me. And let's begin with the mission of American Rivers. You advocate on behalf of rivers in in what way? Well, we've got three main goals to protect wild rivers, to restore damaged rivers, and to conserve clean water. So it's about having healthy rivers that we and wildlife can enjoy and also to have clean drinking water. All right. And restoring rivers then in some cases requires removing dams. And tell us about the infrastructure bill and how that enables removal of dams. We have hundreds of thousands of dams in this country. Only about 3% of them actually produce hydropower, produce electricity. So 97% of all the dams don't produce electricity. And many, many of them are outdated or abandoned and they are causing significant harm to the rivers. It prevents fish from migrating up and down the river, prevents clean water from moving down the rivers, and allowing the river to be healthy and resilient. So there is, fortunately, $800 million in the bipartisan infrastructure law that was passed and signed by the president for removing dams. And the federal government is stepping forward to partner with state governments and local groups and companies to begin removing a lot of these outdated, abandoned, very harmful dams. Yeah, almost every rural town you go through, you know, has a river because that's where towns were built. And there's a little dam there in the middle of town next to the bridge. And I'm seeing how it's hundreds of thousands that you mentioned. But what's the process by which a given dam, which is not a federal facility, could be slated and everyone agrees to remove it? How does that happen? (laughs) It's not easy. It is pretty complicated. We do end up needing to get whether some local permits or state permits, or in some cases, dams are owned by the federal government. So you've got to work with a lot of partners and local stakeholders. But at the end of the day, you end up with a river that is alive, that is resilient. We are having, as we're seeing every day now, more floods and more droughts given climate change. And the best thing to do is to have a river that is functioning, that is healthy, that is flowing, that has its wetlands or its floodplains. So removing a dam, it's kind of like, think of the rivers in the country as your vascular system, your arteries and veins in your body, and the dams as kind of coronary artery disease blocking them. So the best thing to do for the health of the country is to remove these blockages, these dams on so many of our rivers. And so that's what American Rivers and our partners are doing throughout the country. And we're pleased with Congress and the president for that $800 million to help support this dam removal renaissance, if you will. And you mentioned some of these dams are quite old. I mean, they used to call infrastructure at one time, the term was internal improvements, I think it was the word in the United States. And they must have been built for a purpose. Tell us about why some of them may have been built and why they no longer are needed. You know, it's a great point, Tom, because a lot of these dams were built maybe for irrigation purposes or to power, especially in the Northeast, textile mills. Well, the mills are long gone, but the dam is still sitting there because it's, frankly, just abandoned. It's sitting there and nobody has taken it down. So the dams likely were built for good reasons back in the 1950s or whenever, And that reason has long passed. So it's important that we invest in clean rivers and and natural rivers 
So that's kind of the new infrastructure, if you will, and that is removing these dams that are harming the rivers. And they've long since outlived whatever purpose they had back then. You know, some people will see a dam and, and in some cases there is a interesting, important history to it. But in a lot of cases, the best thing to do for the community, for recreation, for health of the river and for clean drinking water, uh, we get 70% of our drinking water from rivers. So the best way to ensure clean drinking water is to remove these outdated dams and allow the river to be clean and allow the fish to migrate so that they too can have a accessible, healthy habitat. We're speaking with Tom Kiernan. He's president and CEO of American Rivers. And you've done a great job of describing the river flows. What is the money flow from what Congress appropriated into whose hands does it need to get? And how does it get there for the eventual removal of dams? There are a number of different federal agencies involved. So some of the money that Congress appropriated went to or is going to the Fish and Wildlife Service. Some of it's going to NOAA. Some of it, a little bit of it to EPA or the Bureau of Reclamation or the Corps of Engineers. So it kind of is going to a number of these different agencies and groups like American Rivers. Also, state governments are working with the federal government to now prioritize which dams to remove. I should say we have removed about 2,000 dams in the last 20, 30 years. We removed 57 dams this last year in 2021. So we are looking to increase the rate of dam removal because, as I said, we've got hundreds of thousands of dams causing a lot of damage throughout the country. So we do need to pick up the pace and, frankly, look for more involvement of the American public and policy leaders, because with climate change, we need healthy, resilient rivers to better manage the floods and droughts that are coming. And another practical question in many towns and locales, small cities, I'm thinking of like Ellicott City, Maryland, for example, a lot of infrastructure Mm -hmm. of a commercial type has built up next to controlled rivers. How do you mitigate what could happen to them when suddenly the dam that gave rise to that development is removed. Well, it's interesting. One of the things we also work on is restoring wetlands and restoring floodplains upstream of some of those urban centers. And one of the best ways of controlling flooding downstream is to have wetlands that are functioning and floodplains that are functioning upstream. Because what happens if there's a big rainstorm, one of the best ways of holding that water back is with wetlands and floodplains. Those soggy areas actually store an awful lot of water. And then what they do is they slowly release it during the summer when you've got all these concrete, whether it's a dam or concrete levees or barriers That actually allows the water to come ripping through all at once and flood towns and cities. So it's the natural infrastructure, the wetlands, the floodplains that do the best, frankly, most cost effective job at retaining water so that we don't get flooded out downstream. And, you know, water managers, we've learned this over the last several decades that just building more concrete and more dams actually is harmful, not helpful. So we're kind of now relying on Mother Nature to slow down the water and to reduce the damage from flooding and drought. And does dam removal, the whole field, include also removal of those rivers that are encased in concrete, like in Los Angeles? You know, it's funny you say that. We are working more and more with communities like Los Angeles, with the Los Angeles River that is, you know, in many cases just kind of a concrete 
culvert or a concrete sluice way and restoring some of the natural systems. And what's also wonderful to see the communities, the people living next door then can get out there walking along the river or fishing even, or even swimming in it where, you know, if it's a just concrete tube, you're not fishing, you're not swimming. It's not pretty. It's not relaxing. So replacing those concrete rivers, restoring with a natural environment makes ecological sense, better water quality, but also for the communities. You know, we live stressful lives these days, and it sure is a lot more pleasant to walk along a relaxing, wooded, riparian area next to a river. And people are seeing that personally stress-reducing to enjoy a natural river through their urban area. So if I want to lay down some rubber on a dry, concrete riverbed, I better do it soon. (laughs) If that were your goal, we would, again, though, hope people would support natural systems, uh, natural rivers, because it's what's best for all of us, Sure, uh, no. both for nature, but very much for communities. No grease reenactments, please. And just a final question. In yeah, all of this exactly. removal, is the Hoover Dam safe? There are big dams that are producing a lot of electricity. You know, the Hoover Dam is not going anywhere. It is there. It is safe. However, you mentioned Hoover Dam and Lake Mead and Lake Powell. We are at record low levels on those lakes because of the drought in the southwest. So here again, we do need to care for, in that case, the Colorado River and work to restore its headwaters and better manage it. Our rivers, I mean, they are the lifelines, the lifeblood of our continent. And we've got to do a better job taking care of our rivers because, again, we rely on them for Yes, for wildlife and habitat, but 70% of our drinking water comes from these rivers. So we're going to get mighty thirsty if we don't do a better job of taking care of our rivers. Tom Kiernan is president and CEO of American Rivers. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. Good to be with you. We'll post this interview along with links to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Paddle the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing 
we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly 
gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.